Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness, and we thank you that you work all over the world. You work here locally, and um, you work in our hearts even, Lord. And uh, somehow you do all of that in your amazing way, according to your grace. And, uh, and Lord, we do pray for these guys as they minister to um, motorcycle gangs and, and um, people that are in many ways outcasts. And, uh, and Lord, they're not outcasts to you. And uh, you died for each and every one of them. And so uh, we thank you for the work that these guys do and for the opportunity uh, to fellowship with them today. And we do pray, Lord, that you would have your way with us uh, as we dive into your word and that you guide us and lead us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would turn to Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to give you a little bit of a roadmap, if I could, because uh, I apologize. Last week, I gave you the roadmap uh, in the last five minutes. That's really not very fair. And so I'm going to give you the roadmap at the beginning today. Some, you may know, if you've been here for a while, sometimes we read like big chunks of Scripture. Usually, you know, after we finish Colossians, we're going to go back to an Old Testament book. We'll be in the book of Jeremiah. We'll probably be reading history and prophecy and, you know, a couple chapters a day kind of a thing. And, and yet, as we go into a section like this, we kind of drop the pace down a little bit. And I was looking even, we left off last week at chapter 3, verse 11, and I was thinking even this week, you know, verses 12 through 25, that's not that many verses. We could do that. And then I look at verse 18, and it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And I thought, I want to devote an hour to that topic. So um, next week, uh, we'll pick up with, uh, is she in the room? Oh, yeah, she's bending over. She's, she's <laughs> bending over in reverence to me, but not that much reverence, please. So, um, whew, it's getting hot in here. Um, so anyway, in, in all seriousness, it, Verse 18 to the end just seems like it's a different, it, it seems like a break in the, in the, in the thought process. And, and, uh, and honestly, these verses 12 through 17 to me are like some of the richest, richest words in the scripture. And um, so if it's okay with you, I just want to mull them over. Is that all right? Just a few verses. Um, I had a guy uh, tell me a couple weeks ago, he says, you know, these chapters in Colossians, you know, usually you kind of go for an hour. You've been going for about 50 minutes. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, so I'm just saying that's probably what I'm going to do if that's okay. 50 minutes or an hour and a half? Maybe 50 minutes. And who knows, by this time, if I ramble enough about my wife, I'll probably go for an hour anyway. So, um, but anyway, so we're just going to do these, these few verses and uh, just kind of, Mull on them. You ever watched an animal grazing that chews its cud? And, you know, if you had science class in junior high, you're supposed to know how many. We were at a trivia game last night at a dinner. You're supposed to know how many stomachs a cow has, right? Anybody know how many? Raise your hand if you think it's three. Raise your hand if you think it's four. Raise your hand if you have no clue. Yeah, well, I think we got it, didn't we? Yeah. With a combined Turner's uh, combined uh, uh, trivia base of the Turners and the Murphys, we trashed the competition. 
So anyway, uh, yeah, so you ever watch a cow or a ruminator, whatever, they kind of stood out in the field and they just kind of they do this, right? And it's like, you can watch them do that for an hour between bites. Like they're not reaching down for the grass, they're just ruminating. So that's what we're going to do with these words today. Is that fair enough? Okay. Chapter 1 told us, chapter 1 of Colossians, told us that Jesus is preeminent. He's the head of the body. He holds the world together. He holds the atoms together. And he holds our lives together. Chapter 2 started out talking about as we journey through life, we do well to fix our eyes on Jesus, keep our eyes on him, and not be distracted. Paul's words were deceived or cheated by the philosophy and persuasive words from the wisdom of man. There's a lot of wisdom of man out there that can distract us, can throw us off course, and we need to focus on Jesus because he's preeminent. And then chapter 2 finished out with the examples of circumcision and baptism to illustrate that Jesus did all the work for us. And he did all the work for us not just to save us, though that was important, but as it relates to our lives on earth today, not just to save us, but also to have fellowship with us. And I want that to drive home as, as one of the points I want to make really throughout this book of Colossians is that the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross, number one, he was qualified because he's preeminent, chapter one, but the work that he did on the cross makes not only our salvation possible, but fellowship with him possible. And too often we stop at the salvation. We just want to, you know, be saved, check the box. Yep, I'm not going to hell. But there's so much, so much more richness in this life that's available to us uh, through the grace of Jesus Christ. So, therefore, we don't live like this is a religious trip, Right? We live like we're longing for deeper fellowship with God. It's all about relationship. It's not about religious works. And then chapter 3 was kind of picked up, you know, as a, as a result of all of that, starts a section on practical Christian living based on that. And last week we talked, again, from the first 11 verses, a couple of things. Number one, he said, put to death a uh, list of things in verse 5. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Those would be good things to put to death in our lives, right? What happens when they're dead? They're dead, right? Things like fornication, things like uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. Those things we're supposed to put to death. And then interestingly, he also tells us a list of things to put off, okay? We put off in verse 8, uh, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of our mouth, okay? And now today, as we pick up, he's going to tell us things to put on, right? Like this morning, maybe you put off your jammies, right? But thank God you put something on before you came here, right? We put stuff off, we put stuff back on. And so today, we're going to kind of finish that idea with the idea of what we put on, okay? And so the things we put on are very, very important. Interestingly, you know, they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment, right? What did he say? Number one is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's number two? Love your neighbors yourself. We love God, we love our neighbor, right? Notice this, the things that we're supposed to put to death, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which, which is idolatry. If we put to death those things, that has to do with our love of God, 
right? If we put to death those things, it'll enhance our fellowship with God. Won't make us saved, right? Because we're saved only by grace, not of works lest anyone should boast, Ephesians chapter 2. But, we're, but we enhance our, 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 just from our side of things, our fellowship with God by putting those things to death. That has to do with our relationship with God. What was the second great commandment? Love one another. And that, those things are we would say negatively impacted by anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of our mouth. And so today, if you will, we're kind of moving towards more of the things we put on have to do with how we relate to one another. Does that make sense? Like we've talked about in the past, uh, for example, in I believe 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is a great description by Paul about the body of Christ. The body of Christ functions like the human body with all the different types of cells working together, um, you know, in great uh, synchrony, uh, great cooperation to accomplish the purposes that the human body accomplishes. That's how the body of Christ works, right? But I think there's a... Thing that we sometimes miss when we talk about how the body of Christ works, we're talking about those functions, right? And so it's kind of like what we do as a body of Christ. And I think these verses in, in Colossians chapter 3 are more addressing how we do what we do. And that's important too. You ever notice that? It's very important not only what we do, but how we do it. And so that's what we get into it here a little bit. I think these verses, maybe more than any other verses in the Bible, uh, give us just beautiful, beautiful instruction on how to relate to one another in the body of Christ. So, so we're going to go slow. We're going to mull it over. Is that all right? Okay. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. So, therefore... As the elect. Now, we've said this a million times. The word therefore means because of everything prior. When you see the word therefore in Scripture, you ask, what's it therefore? It's there because of everything that's prior. What's prior? Jesus is preeminent. What's prior? God wants to have fellowship with us. What's prior? Everything I just said, right? Therefore, as the elect of God. Now, Elect is a bit of a trigger word in the body of Christ, right? We've talked about this many, a million times before. There's sort of this balance that we have. On one hand, God is completely sovereign. He's completely in control. Uh, you know, he did all the work for salvation and all that. He loves us. He sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for us. He chose us before the foundation of time to be his children. All of those sorts of things, right? But then there's, there's also the man's responsibility side. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him, that's a verb, right? Whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And somehow those two things work in, uh, in harmony, really honestly in ways that we don't fully understand. But the idea of election is that somehow before the foundation of time, just think about this for a second without trying to dissect it theologically. Here's the problem. Too often we get in a theological debate. Well, I'm more of a sovereignty type person. Well, I'm more of a responsibility type person. And what I would say is just accept it. Don't argue over it. Just accept it. Right? And so, you know, sovereignty people, they love the word election. Right? They love that word elect because that's what we are. We're elect. Responsibility people, 
frankly tend to overlook that word, <laughs> right? But that's okay. Uh, there's grace for all that. But the point that I want to make today is we are elected by God. What does that mean? That means before the foundation of the earth, before he said, just think about this. Before he said, let there be light, he knew that you would be born. He knew that you'd be here today. He knew that you'd be born a sinner. He knew that you'd be born in need of a savior. He knew that Jesus' death and resurrection was the only solution to your sin problem. And he chose you before the foundation of time to be one of his children. That's election. Is that cool? Now, somehow in there, you said yes to his choice. You agreed with him <laughs> somehow, right? But just, just get your head around, if you will, that he elected us, that, that somehow in this grand scheme of things, he chose me to be his child. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. And what I want to paint the picture of here is... Because of that, I should say, now, what was that thing I was stressed about? Right? What was it that's so burdensome that... What were we fighting about on the way to church? Right? We're elect. Oh, and it gets better. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved... Well, holy. Are we holy? Trick question. Are we holy? Nobody is, we're afraid to answer, right? We're not holy on our own, right? Romans chapter 3 says, I believe verse 21 says, Now the righteousness apart from God, or apart from the law, has been revealed. The righteousness of God, apart from the law, has been revealed. We're not holy according to the law. We're not holy according to what we do or anything like that. But once we receive Jesus, we become uh, uh, Christians because he uh, foreknew before the foundation of time and he chose us. Right? As soon as that became us, the righteousness of God was applied to our lives. So when he sees us, he sees us as holy. Hebrews tells us that he remembers our sins no more. Romans tells us that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So sometimes I think we get, you know, we get burdened about maybe a, a stumbling that we've had or whatever like that. And it's like we want to keep bringing it up to God. Oh God, I'm so sorry that I did that thing back in, you know, whenever. And in a real sense, you know, according to the scripture, God says, huh, what are you talking about? Because in my mind, you're, you're elect, you're holy, you're beloved, you're beloved, you're beloved. So not only are we elect, not only are we holy, we're beloved. What's it mean to be beloved? It means to be beloved, right? What does that mean as it relates to us? It means our search for significance is over. How often do we spend our decades searching for some type of significance, right? 
Well, what's more significant than the God of all creation chose you from before the foundation of time? Before he said, let there be light, he knew that you would have a sin problem, and he sent his son to die for you. What, what, what greater significance can we attain by any other means than that? None. Absolutely none. So, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, therefore, do you see the groundwork we lay, right? The groundwork we lay makes us say, yeah, of course I'm going to do whatever you want me to do, right? You elected me. I'm holy because of you and not because of me, because I, I know how rotten my flesh is. I'm pretty well aware of how rotten my flesh is. I'm holy, I'm beloved, therefore, what should I do? Well, I'm supposed to put off those things up there in verse 8, but now I'm supposed to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. So, the elect of God, holy and beloved, tells us who we are. We should live according to who we are. Who we are, I said this last week, who we are defines how we live. So, we're holy and beloved only because of Jesus. And now we put on first tender mercies. What's tender mercy? Tender mercy is the idea of empathy. Tender mercy is the idea of empathy. It's not specific. The, the word is a little bit, I believe, in its context. It doesn't have to do with mercy like forgiving somebody that doesn't deserve it, right? That's the mercy of God for us, right? We don't deserve mercy, but he forgave us anyway, right? We'll get to forgiveness uh, here in the next verse. But I believe this is more of an empathy. The, the Greek is literally translated the bowels of pity. You like that? Tender mercies is translated the bowels of pity. Right now, have you ever in your own life been stressed about something so stressed that it's like, let's say you're going to go into a stressful situation. You are have a stressful meeting. You're going to, uh, you know, have a sit down with uh, a coworker or a boss or something. And, and you know, it's like anything could happen. The whole thing could just blow up and explode right in front of your face. Right. What do you feel physically on your way into that meeting? You feel your belly go like, right? Right? Am I making this up? Right, right. Affirm me. I need it. Right? You feel like this, oh, this is stressful. I don't like this. I can't wait till this is over. Right? You ever felt that for somebody else's pain? You ever felt that for somebody else's situation? That's what tender mercies means, right? We should have that level of empathy. Honestly, if I'm transparent, I feel that way about myself more than I feel that way about other people, right? I'm very in tune with my own anxieties, right? But I think it's, it's important that we put on tender mercies, the bowels of pity. We should empathize with one another to the point of feeling it in our gut. You know, oftentimes, we can't do anything to fix somebody else's issue. People have hard issues. People in this room have very hard issues at times. And I've learned this as a doctor. 
there's a lot of times I can't fix a problem. But I can listen. I can empathize. Right? I can't fix it. But I can listen. I can empathize. And I believe that has some degree of healing. Right? I know that's the case when, you know, when I go through stuff. If somebody would just listen, right? And ladies, what do you tell your husbands all the time? Don't try to what? It's a three-letter word. starts with F and ends in X. X. It's not Fox. Don't try to fix me. Right? Men, do we try to do that? Maybe I'm the only one that's ever experienced that, too. Right? Sometimes I think that we're so task-oriented. Men tend to be a little bit more this way. We're so task-oriented, we want to get to the root of that problem and just, and just pull it out by its roots. Right? But the idea of putting on tender mercies, and, and men and all of us, let me just say this is a biblical command. The idea of putting on tender mercies means, oh, we need to be able to say with sincerity, my kids tease me because sometimes I'll say, oh, bless your heart, right? We need to be able to say that with sincerity. And I, I, I experience this in my office. Sometimes it's, it's, really, it's really humbling and sobering that sometimes I, can, I know I'm not fixing this problem, this medical problem or this situation or whatever. I know I'm not fixing it. The patient knows I'm not fixing it. We all know I'm not fixing it. You can make the case, so why did I come here today? Right? And very often, it's just so they can just say their thing. And I can say, oh, that's got to be hard. And mean it. And let me just tell you this. If you know me very well, if you know me for any period of time, that is the Lord working through me. That is clearly, and I'm sincere about this, that is clearly not my nature. I am a let's go get it done kind of a guy, right? But as the Lord works in us, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, he works in us and through us to be able to do that. So nobody uh, is so uh, stoic or so task-oriented or so productive that they can't pause in life for a moment of tender mercies to those who need them. Is that fair? That's tender mercies. Kindness. I think of kindness, I think of kindness as being the twin brother of tender mercies. Right? If I have tender mercy toward you, like the bowels of pity, if I'm experiencing the bowels of pity toward you, I'm going to act with kindness. Right? But kindness is the act of a person that has tender mercies. So these are things we're supposed to put on. And by the way, let me just say, when it talks about put on, I meant to mention this earlier, I'm sorry. I'm not talking about putting, you know, the, the image here is clothing, right? We put off certain things, we put on certain things. You ever notice what, like, there's some things you can put on, right? You put on a hat, you put on sunglasses, you put on your shoes, Right? Put on your socks. I mean, you all know that's not what Scripture's talking about here. We're talking about, like, putting on a wetsuit, right? I mean, if I stand up here with a wetsuit and, you know, a mask and a, you know, snorkel sticking out of my mouth, 
at a point like this so you could hear me, right? You'd say, I bet that guy's a diver. Right? Right? It would define who I am. And I would act a certain way. You'd say, I bet he can swim. Right? There, there are assumptions that you would glean just from what I've put on. Right? And here's the kicker. Somebody should look at our, what we've put on and say, I bet that guy knows the Lord. Right? That's the how we do what we do. So we're going to put on tender mercies. We're going to act those tender mercies out with kindness. Next, we're going to put on humility. The Greek is a compound word, which means humbleness of mind. Humbleness of mind. It's really in the mind. Look back at Romans chapter 12. Many of you know these verses. Very familiar. Starting in verse 1. Paul says to the Romans, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, means like I'm begging you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Often we we. Many of us memorize those verses, right? So Paul says, I beg you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that we just present ourselves to him. That's our only reasonable service. In response to all that God has done for us, our only reasonable response is uh, to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, and to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of our mind. Well, what does our mind do? Verse 3, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So a big part of the transformation of our lives by the renewing of our mind specifically relates to how we view ourselves. Simple as that. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. You don't have to turn there, but Galatians, just for the sake of emphasis, reiterates the same thing. Verse three, is it chapter 6, verse 3. Paul says to the Galatians, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So the reality is we need to have a sober view of ourselves. A sober view of ourselves. Again, we're holy because of the grace of God. But that doesn't mean we're pompous because of the grace of God, right? And by the way, we're talking about how we relate to others. If I'm obsessed with myself, can I put on tender mercies as it, regards, as it relates to your problem? Probably not. If I'm obsessed with myself, am I, I going to be necessarily defined by kindness toward you? Probably not. If I'm obsessed with myself... I'm going to be obsessed with myself. It's going to dominate my thinking. It's going to dominate my actions. And so we can't be that. Then he says, put on meekness. Many people have said, you know, meekness is not weakness. But meekness is a type of humility. I think, again, maybe this, if this helps, just like kindness is the act 
of what happens when we put on tender mercies, I think meekness is the act of when we put on humility. Because if I put on humility, I'm going to carry myself in a way that's meek. Does that make sense? I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to stick my nose up in the air. I'm not going to puff out my chest. I'm not going to, you know, there's a lot of things I'm going to not do if I'm humble. And that's really going to sort of characterize me as a meek person. And that's how uh, we're to relate to one another. You know, there's a, you know, you hear people say the phrase, how does, how does this person carry himself, right? Well, we don't pick ourselves up, literally. But there's a way we carry ourselves. Does that make sense? And it should be defined as meekness and not as pompousness. Long-suffering. Long-suffering is also translated patience. And often, let me just say this. When we think of patience, we think of, I'm waiting patiently for God to fix my situation. That's usually what we think of when we think of the biblical application of the word patient. I'm waiting for God to pay the bills. I'm waiting for God to fix my marriage. I'm waiting for God to restore the prodigal. I'm waiting for God to make my boss know how to treat their workers. I'm waiting for this. I'm waiting for this. This patient, what are we talking about in this context of these scriptures? What are these scriptures talking about? Are they talking about situations or are they talking about how we relate to one another? They're talking about how we relate to one another. So let's, re, let's revisit that word long-suffering or patience, right? Patient with one another. When we think of patience, you know, we always joke like, I'm praying for patience and, I'll, and I'm praying that God will give me patience now, right? We're talking about our situation. What I believe he's talking about that, we, that is so overlooked is patience with one another. Patience with one another. Do we need to be patient with one another? Am I a work in progress or a finished product? You can be honest. A work in progress, right? So do you have opportunity to be patient with me? Yes, you do. Do I have opportunity to be patient with you? Yes, I do. We all have opportunity to be patient with one another. And let me just say this again, again, again. In this last year and a half that we've been through, this last couple years that we've been through, are people in general patient with one another as person A is a work in progress? And how does person B relate to person A? Does person B relate to person A with patience? with long-suffering? Generally not. Generally not. And I say, what a privilege that we were put on this earth for such a time as this to demonstrate and to model long-suffering with other human beings who are not perfect. I love that we're not all the same. I love that. I encourage that. I pray for that. I would love to see more not all the same in this room. 
because I think we need the exercise, we need the discipline, we need the experience of learning how to be patient with one another. Because that's just a part of life. And it's part of the Christian life. And it's a critical part of the Christian life. Too often, too often, too often, too often, whether it's in secular society or in, in the body of Christ specifically, too often, I just huddle up with people that are just like me and think just like me and make the same amount of money I do and talk like me, got the same skin color as me, got the same denominational background as me, same place on the sovereignty responsibility scale as me, and, and we all just affirm each other, right? That's not how life's supposed to be lived. Not at all. Not at all. Jesus didn't die for my group, right? For God so loved my group that he gave his only begotten son so that anybody in my group should believe in him. Is that what he says? No, the world. The world. The world and all of its ethnic diversity, the world and all of its broken people, of which I am one. That's long-suffering. Bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. You know, bearing with one another has the idea of allowing myself to be inconvenienced by another person. Are we okay being inconvenienced by another person? Because, you know, that's sometimes inconvenient, right? That we can let ourselves be inconvenienced by another person. We need to be okay with that. Now, there's an order of things, right? If I'm supposed to minister to my family and today's my day, you know, that, you know, I've got to, if I'm in a meeting or if I'm doing something right, um, you know, I might put my phone on silent and get back to you later, right? That kind of thing. I'm not talking about chaos. There's still an order in things. But in general, am I okay being inconvenienced? Am I okay bearing with one another? Am I okay helping to lighten the burden of another person? Because this is, this, I find this very fascinating in the body of Christ. I might have a certain skill or ability that's like a no-brainer to me. And you might have need of that skill. And what seems like a little sacrifice to me is very often a huge blessing to you and vice versa, right? Just little things. And we have those opportunities if we look for them. That's bearing with one another. Galatians tell us, bear with one another and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We all carry burdens. We all carry burdens. That's why it's so important, I believe, that we pray for one another. That's why I want to encourage us to pray for one another, because we all carry burdens. Galatians says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I think bearing one with one another has another connotation, too, that you might not like to hear about. You want to hear about it? <laughs> Has there ever been anybody in your life, Christian or non-Christian, that just kind of bugs you? 
Now, let me just pause for a second. I can ask a million rhetorical questions that I think are brilliant, and you guys are like, act like you're hypnotized. I can ask the question, is anybody that bugs you? And I hear this like three or five, oh yeah, oh yeah. You, as a matter of fact. We all have people that bug us, right? And oftentimes, it's for a stupid reason, right? We don't like the way they do X, Y, Z or whatever, and it's not even anything that, if we're really honest with ourselves, has any significance whatsoever. But it bugs us, right? I think the scripture would, would exhort that. Bearing with one another, in my, the way I read the scripture, says we need to learn how to put on tender mercies toward that person that bugs us. That's called bearing with one another, right? Because if all I can see in you is that which bugs me, who am I thinking about? I'm thinking about me. But if I can see beyond that which bugs me to see the burden that you're carrying, now I can have tender mercies, right? The bowels of pity. But I have to get beyond that thing that bugs me. And so I believe that's an application of bearing with one another. And forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So can I say this? Forgiveness is one of the most powerful tools for relationship building that we have at our disposal. Forgiveness is one of the most powerful tools that we have for relationship building at our disposal. And it's not always easy. Just like you have people that bug you, you have people that have wronged you. And we can all resonate with that. We all have people that have wronged us. Period. We need to know how to forgive. What happens when we don't forgive and we choose to live in unforgiveness? We become, what is the word? It starts with a B. Bitter. We become bitter. So, you know, you got a scenario. Mr. Brown did something that wronged me. Maybe it was little, maybe it was big. Maybe it was huge. And I cannot get over it. There's an old, uh, well, okay, it's secular, but there's an old James Taylor song that says, there's a feeling like a clenching of a fist. You know that feeling? There's a feeling like the clenching of a fist. That's how I feel whenever I think about that guy. I feel it in my fist. I feel it in my entire being. It affects how I talk. It affects my facial expression. It affects my posture. It affects everything about me. And if you ask me, how you doing? Probably sooner or later, if you give me enough time, I'm going to say, I'm doing horrible because Mr. Brown did whatever to me back in 1978. Right? 
And what I really want, I want Mr. Brown to get what's coming to him. So Mr. Brown, let's say, wronged me back in 1978. What's he doing right now while I'm all postured up? He's probably playing golf, living life, shopping, chilling, having dinner with his wife. He probably forgot all about it. Who is negatively impacted for the long haul? Him or me? The bitter man. The bitter man is always more harmed. Always. What happens when we forgive Mr. Brown? It's like releasing that steam valve and, oh, you know, now that you mention it, I'm the elect of God, holy and beloved. I can put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. I can bear with Mr. Brown. Jesus died for him. Jesus looked at those guys and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I could probably forgive Mr. Brown, right? Bitterness is super, super damaging. Forgiveness is super, super liberating. And oftentimes, Mr. Brown may never apologize. Can I tell you this? Can I just prepare us for something in life? Mr. Brown may wrong us and never apologize. But wait a minute. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. So, just for clarity, he gives us some detail as to how we're to forgive Mr. Brown. How? Even as Christ forgave you. When did Christ forgive me? After I apologized? What's Romans 5.8 say? Even while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When do we forgive Mr. Brown? When he comes crawling down back on his hands and knees? No. I would even make a case, if I say, I'll forgive him when he crawls back on his hands and knees, am I really going to forgive him? No. No. When he comes crawling back on his hands and knees, honestly, he's, he's sort of uh, declared that the time is too late for me to have opportunity to extend mercy to him. That opportunity is gone. So, as Christ forgave us, so we also must do with one another. Can you imagine what the world would be like if we all, if the body of Christ, just imagine this right now, especially in our current social um, paradigm, we'll say. If every Christian, and I'm not even talking about the lost now, if every Christian put 
to application, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, all the time. What would be the evangelistic impact to the world? Man, everybody would say, I want that. I want that. But he goes on. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Now, there are, there are different words, Greek words, that uh, are translated love. Uh, this one is agape. It's the sacrificial love that God has for us. And let me say this. The only way that we can love like that is the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in our lives. Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right? Love is the first one. The love of the Holy Spirit, God in us as believers, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, God bears fruit in our lives. And the first of the fruit, really the main fruit, and all the others are sort of descriptions of the love, is love. I cannot really, honestly, that, you know, the person that bugs me, the person that wronged me, the person that needs my tender mercies, all of that, I can't do any of that without the love of Christ coming through me. The love of Christ, the Holy Spirit in me, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. And that is a bond of perfection. I love that. It's the bond of perfection. John 13, 35, Jesus said, the way we'll be identified as Christians is by our, what? Love. And then imagine, think about that for a minute. There are all the ways, I told you if I had a scuba suit on, you'd call me a, you know, a diver, right? How many different ways do we identify ourselves as Christians? Well, I'm a Christian because, you know, I got a fish on my car. I'm a Christian because I listen to... Christian music. I'm a Christian because I go to church. I'm a Christian because I, re I read my Bible. I'm a Christian because I prayed the prayer. I'm a Christian because I was baptized. I'm a Christian because fill in your blank. Jesus says we'll be identified as Christians by love because the Holy Spirit will be in us and he will bear fruit which is love. That's who we're identified as Christians. But of all, above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. The bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. The peace of God. Do we need the peace of God in 2021? We do. We do, we do, we do. Peace is the opposite of conflict. Now, let me just say, and there are verses to back this up, sometimes we have to take a stand for right. Sometimes we have to stand on our convictions. We, we, we sometimes, um, you know, convictions can sometimes divide people. I understand that. Sometimes we have to stand on our convictions. And sometimes that does cause conflict. I mean, Jesus, Jesus caused conflict on the earth. Right? And sometimes, that, sometimes that's what it is. 
But I would argue that most of our conflicts, most of our fights don't need to be fought. Is that fair? Most of our fights, really in humanity, don't need to be fought. Most of our social fights don't need to be fought. We should have more peace than we have. Again, peace is a fruit of the Spirit. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. We should have more peace. So he's exhorting us, let the peace of God rule in your heart. So not only does God give us what we need for social peace, but it even dials down to, you know, individual peace. We should be able to have peace with that guy that bugs us, right? But not only that, it even dials down further. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. I should have peace in my own heart. I should have peace in my own heart. What's peace? Peace, again, peace is the opposite of conflict. Peace is the fruit of the Spirit. And let me just try this as an exercise. Therefore, as the elect of God, remember all I said about the elect of God? Holy and beloved. Remember what I said it means to be holy and beloved? Remember that? Before the foundation of the earth, God loved us. God died for us. While we were yet sinners, everything we've said thus far today, should those things give us peace or conflict? Peace. Tremendous peace. Philippians calls it the peace which passes all understanding. And the peace which passes all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's like that peace, that peace that we know is from God, that, you know what, I know the world. I mean, God's not blind, right? I know there's problems in the world. I know there's problems in my individual life. I know there's problems in my, in my immediate circle. God knows that. I know that. But the peace of God, it's like transcends all of that. The peace of God cuts through all of that and guards my heart. That's my emotion. And my mind. That's my thoughts. In Christ Jesus. He says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Can I say this, body of Christ? Please stop fretting. Body of Christ, please stop fretting about them, what they're going to do to us. All right? What they might do. What their agenda is. But whoever you're there, whoever your they is, because everybody's got a they, right? If you're on the left, the they is everybody on the right. If you're on the right, the they is everybody on the left, right? Whoever your they is, let the peace of God rule in your heart and be mindful that most of our fights don't need to be fought. Let the peace of God rule, reign in your hearts, because that's what you were called in how many bodies? How many bodies of Christ are there? One. One body of Christ. In one body. And everybody read this with me. And be thankful. Thankful. Just like I said, forgiveness. I believe forgiveness is like 
the master lock key to so many of the of the barriers, the doors that barricade relationships in our lives. It's like forgiveness is that key that just unlocks the door and it's wide open now. Right? I think thankfulness is the key that opens up the peace of God to rule in our hearts. You show me a thankful person, you show me a thankful person, and I'll show you somebody that has the peace of God ruling in their hearts. Well, I'll be thankful when he gives me X, Y, Z. That's just like, that's more black. That's just like, you know, I'll be thankful when Mr. Brown comes and crawling on his hands and knees, except it's more blasphemous because we're talking about God. Right? What did God give you? God gave you what he gave you. Right? And we need to be content with that. The thankful person gladly accepts whatever God has given him, given him or her. Think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. How did sin come into the world? Because God said, you can, ha can you imagine what the Garden of Eden would have been like? And God said, it's all yours. Just eat, drink, and be merry. Tend the garden. Enjoy your wife. Live in harmony with me. Except not that one tree. Were Adam and Eve thankful? No, unthankfulness means I can't get my eye off of that one tree. Can I tell you what, in modern day America, unthankfulness means if there were only that one tree that I could have, man, then life would be awesome. The thankful person says, I'm in the Garden of Eden. I'm the elect of God. What a rich life. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts and be thankful. Be thankful. Well, I promised you I was going to go short, and uh, I'm not. So, uh, verse 16. To me, wow, what a home run. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. To me, this is one of the richest verses in the entire Bible. This is why I love the Word of God. This and 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. You know that one. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That verse and this is why I teach the Bible verse by verse. This verse, to me, is like one of the great home runs of Scripture. Some of you heard me say this before, and I don't know, I mean, you know, the, the original writers didn't put chapters and verses, but I always think it's interesting the way God worked it out. You know, what's the first verse you learn in the Bible? Uh, what's the first Bible verse you learn when you're a kid? John what? 3.16. And it's always been interesting to me that there are several other awesome 3.16s in the Bible. If you ever want to do like a devotional, in my mind I went through them. John 3.16, Ephesians 3.16, Colossians 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, which I just quoted, James 3.16 and 17, 1 John 3.16. They're all home run verses. 
I don't know if God worked that out or not, but that's just cool. But Colossians 3.16, wow. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell is a powerful word. Dwell is a powerful word. What happens when two people dwell together? They sort of become like each other, right? When two people get married or two people dwell together, they become like each other. My wife and I are way more like each other than we were 30 years ago. Way more. We'll talk about that next week. When you dwell with someone, it impacts who you are. It impacts who you are. If the Word of God is living in us and dwelling in us, it changes us. Over time, it transforms who we are. It transforms who we are. The Word of God transforms who we are. And can I say this? Again, the Christian life is not stop cussing, start going to church, give your tithes, read your Bible, do that. No, it's not that. The, word, the, the Christian life is be transformed from the inside out. And one of the, I mean, one of the most vital basic tools of that is to let the word of Christ dwell in you. How should it dwell in you? Richly. Richly. I mean, don't give it a passing glance. Don't just use it to make a point. Dwell in it. Let it dwell in you richly. Meditate on it richly. You know, after many of the Psalms, the uh, stanzas in the Psalms, you know, that, you know, it says the word Selah, right? It means chew on this. That's why I'm going slow through these verses. Let's chew on these things. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom, right? Because there's a lot of wisdom out there, so quote unquote, but the Bible is absolutely the source of all wisdom. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So teaching and admonishing one another means we all learn from one another. Could it be, you ever experienced this, that that thing that, that, bu that bugs you about that guy, the Lord used that to sort of teach you a lesson about yourself? That happens, right? Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So we sing songs of praise of all different styles. They come out of our hearts with thankfulness, and we sing to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whatever you do means whatever you do. Whatever you do. Let me just say this also. We live in a very, very um, entertainment-minded society, uh, self-entitlement-minded society. You know, I deserve some me time. 
I deserve to chill. I deserve a break today. I deserve this. I deserve that. And, you know, I'll be deliberate about doing what needs to be done tomorrow because today I'm just going to hang out. Now, sometimes we need to refresh ourselves mentally. Sometimes we go on vacation. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Sometimes we eat food, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes we sleep. There's nothing wrong with that. All those things are a part of our intentional, deliberate Christian life. But let me just say this. Too much of that takes away from our deliberate, intentional life. We need to be deliberate. I hope you sense the, uh, you know, God may be like trying to wake us all up as a, as a world for whatever reason, but I, I really wonder if time is short. If time is short, you know, and, and we're talking about God now, so time short mean, might mean another, you know, however many thousand years. Might be another 10 minutes. We don't know. But I hope we sense the urgency in our day, that again, we were born for such time as this. We need to be deliberate about what we do. This life is not about games. This life is not about acquiring toys. This life is about deliberately, whatever we do, in word or deed, that we do it all in the name of Jesus. And how should we do it? Giving thanks. Again, thankfulness, that key that unlocks so many doors to God the Father through him. So Jesus is preeminent over all creation. Jesus died for us, not just to save us, but to have fellowship with us. He desires to transform us into his image so that we can have fellowship with him, better fellowship with him. He conforms us to have better fellowship with him, and he exhorts us to have fellowship with one another. And there's a vital part that we play, right? Because we're elect of God, because we're holy and beloved, these are the ways we relate to one another. And you know what? There'd be a lot more peace in the world if we apply these verses. Let's be the models for the world. Let's be the prototypes for the world of people who live according to Colossians chapter 3. And that's a piece of our evangelism and a piece of our own peace of mind, right? and our fellowship with God, and all of that just works together for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much that you're so good to us, that you did choose us before the foundation of time, and Lord, we, we just thankfully receive that. And Lord, we love the fellowship that we experience with you. We appreciate the fellowship we experience with you. We, we love your word. We appreciate your word. We appreciate all these verses that encourage us and remind us how to relate to one another with grace because you related to us according to grace. So, Lord, help us to live that way. Help us to be a beacon to a world that needs your light. And we'll give you all the praise and honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.